In John chapter 8, if we look back a few, a few pages, we, what we would find is that all throughout the Gospel of John, we've been seeing this growing tension. We've been seeing Jesus do incredible things, amazing things. In fact, if you just flip back a few chapters, what you're going to see is that in the end of chapter 4, Jesus heals a man who's, or heals a, a son of a man who that son was on the verge of death. In chapter 5, he heals a paralytic man at the pool of Bethesda. In chapter 6, he feeds 5,000 people plus with two little fish and five loaves of bread. And the news of these miracles is spreading and his ministry is growing, but at the same time, intermingled in those things, Jesus is proclaiming truths about himself that some people don't really like. Even though these miracles are validating this, and in, in John chapter 5, I think in around verse 36, he even talks about the fact that, listen, this is part of the purpose, if not the purpose of these miracles, to validate and show to you that I am who I say I am. But this group of religious leaders that we have gotten to know named the Pharisees do not like what Jesus is saying. And even though they can see the miracles, even though they can see what's going on, they really just, they can't stand him because he's saying things that are challenging their status quo. And so as we examine this passage of scripture, which really has a confrontational moment between Jesus and these Pharisees, I just want to try and answer three simple questions. And here's the questions. What is Jesus saying? How did the Pharisees respond the religious leaders of the day, and how should we respond? What is Jesus saying? How did the Pharisees respond, and how should we respond? So what is Jesus saying? Let's open up to verse 12, and we've heard it read, but let's read what Jesus says. This is the crux of what he says. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So this is his first statement, and the Pharisees are immediately perturbed by this. And you might think, okay, I think I understand what he's saying. Verse 12, we generally understand the principle. Light represents goodness, and dark represents badness. So Jesus is generally saying, I am good. You need to follow me. But to understand what Jesus is really saying, how deep it goes, and what he's actually proclaiming, we need to understand a little bit about where Jesus is and what's going on at this time. If we look back to John chapter 7 and a few weeks ago, Paul mentioned it, the, the Jews are in the time of the, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, which was two different things that it was called. And it was this tremendous party in the first century uh, AD that, that was like a, a seven-day party for the Jews to remember the faithfulness of God and to remember things that God had done for them in the past. I remember Paul uh, likened it to uh, country thunder for the Jews. Now... I'm not sure that that's quite accurate. I've never been to Country Thunder. But if Country Thunder represents millions, okay, over a million Jews descending upon the city of Jerusalem for seven days in thousands of tents interspersed all across the city, then maybe we can liken it to that. I don't think Country of Thunder really achieves that type of status. This was big. There were three kind of major uh, holiday kind of festivals in the Jewish calendar, and if you could only go to one, like if you could only get to one of them, this was the one that you were going to go to, at least in the first century. This was the one that you were going to go to. Seven days of remembrance and celebration. What were they remembering? 
Well, 1,500 years earlier in the time of Exodus, the Jewish people, the Israelites, were enslaved to the Egyptians. And it was brutal. And they hated it. And they cried out for rescue. And God rescued them supernaturally. If you remember a little bit, in the book of Exodus, it's Pharaoh the, and the Egyptians have the Israelites, and God brings seven plagues that just torment Pharaoh to the point that he has to say, okay, and Moses says, let my people go. And finally, Pharaoh says, okay, I'll let you go. And God leads his people into the desert, and God is leading them to a promised land, and we can read and learn all sorts of things through that journey because the Israelites are not necessarily a faithful people, which is very much like us today, and God teaches them many lessons. But one of the first things that God sets up is this great cloud in the desert. I was thinking about this. We live in a desert. We understand this. I'm from the Midwest. And even in the Midwest when I was growing up, if it was a beautiful day, if it was a really nice day, I would look up in the sky and the sun was shining and everything, but there were still clouds everywhere. Like I had never really seen a cloudless sky until I moved to Arizona. But in Arizona, when there's a clear day, you look up, you're like, there's not a cloud up there. Like, it's just all blue. So you know what the desert is like. And God brings a literal, tremendous, massive cloud that covers the Israelite people, which was a group of some millions of people. So supernaturally does this. And go, okay, well, what did that cloud do for them? In Exodus 13, 21 and 22, and you don't have to turn there, here's what he says. And the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light so that they might travel by night or by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night, the presence of the people. So there are three things that this cloud represented to the people of Israel. It represented God's presence because they could see that he was there. And there's even passages where it alludes to him kind of speaking from the cloud. It wasn't like they had an ongoing conversation or anything like that, but it clearly represented God's presence. The second thing that it represented was God's protection. It was sweltering heat in the desert. And it says that he moved that cloud over them so that they could be shaded and have protection and peace from the environment. And then he would guide them with the cloud. It was, it was their guide to where they would go. When the cloud moved, guess what they did? They moved because they didn't want to get scorched in the sun. So they followed that cloud and God guided them. And on night, at night, just imagine this. It's one thing to have a cloud that kind of moves around in the sky and you go, that's kind of odd. And in the desert, we have this incredible cloud. But at night, the thing lit on fire and shown a bright enough light to give them light and to take them where God wanted them to go. It's a miraculous and incredible thing to think about. So this festival, the Feast of Tabernacles, was a celebration and a remembrance of what God had done. And one of the coolest parts of this festival was that each afternoon, they would light up these incredible 75-foot-tall, all-gold lamps that burnt oil I think there were four of them, and they would light these lamps, and they would burn all night. And it was said that the glow from these lamps was so bright and so crazy that it shed light into every corner or every, cab, or, you know, every uh, courtyard of Jerusalem. A massive amount of light shining all over the city to remember and celebrate what God had done. So when, God, or when Jesus is referring to what God had done in the time of Exodus, and he's saying, listen, I am the light of the world. You know that light that you just lit that represents the cloud and all the things that God did for you? Everyone there knew 
Jesus is not saying, hey, I'm a good guy. You should follow my principles. Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. Follow me and you will not walk in darkness. He's saying, I am God's presence. I am God's protection. I am the guide for you to follow and for all of the world. It's the closest thing that he could say to essentially saying, I am God, without actually saying those very words. So we see what Jesus is saying. Now, how do the Pharisees respond? The second question. How do the Pharisees respond? In a word, poorly. Now, it's a little bit understandable, but the reality is you have to take this in context. We can't just drop into John chapter 8 and act like this is the first conversation they've had or that Jesus has done nothing. They've seen the miracles. They've known that John the Baptist came ahead of him and said, he's coming. The Messiah is coming. Jesus, the Christ, is coming. There's a grave irony in this with the Pharisees. The the grave irony is this, that that because of their thoughts and their beliefs and their kind of added rules about God and their opinions and all the things that they add to the law, thinking that they were pleasing to God, because of all those things, the actual Messiah that they were waiting for is standing right in front of them and they can't see him. They don't see him. So even though he is offering salvation, he's offering this wonderful thing, the Pharisees are more into their rules than they are reality. They would rather judge the piety of Christ by the things that they call good than rather than seeing the person of Christ. The reality of Christ is standing right before them and they can't see him. And we see this in in basically verses 13 through 27, which is not necessarily the the point that I want to drive. So we're going to try and move quickly through this section. But I want you to see that the, the Pharisees question and challenge Jesus in two ways. They question the validity of his testimony, and they question the validity of his character. <clears throat> so we're just going to see quickly, well, as quickly as, as I can. This is where I get bogged down. As quickly as we can, what he's actually being challenged by. So Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. He makes this incredible claim. And the first thing the Pharisees say is, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. They essentially say, we're not even going to evaluate whether or not that statement is true. We want off on a technicality. Our law says that you're not allowed to just testify about yourself. In fact, our law says that only if you have two witnesses can your testimony be true, which the law of God actually did not necessarily say that. But here is what it did say. In Deuteronomy 17, 6, it says this. On the testimony of two witnesses or three witnesses, the condemned shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. So they're saying, listen, if we're going to have a capital case where we want to put someone to death or something, we're not just going to do it with one witness. We need more than one witness. And in Deuteronomy 19, 15, he says this, a single witness shall not rise up against a person regarding any wrongdoing or any sin that he commits. On the testimony of two or three, the witness or the matter shall be confirmed. What they're saying is that when someone brings an accusation against someone, we're not just going to go, one person can do it. We need two witnesses at least. Now, the reality here is that the Jews are actually the ones accusing. 
They're the ones who would kind of need the two witnesses to say that what he's saying is not true. But even so, and the reality is, they're talking about capital cases and legal cases. They're talking about like, okay, what do we do in these situations of crimes where we need to give punishment? That's not the context here. But the Jews, one of the rules that they had added was they so loosely interpreted this and took it to the greatest extent that they could that essentially they were saying, we're not going to believe anything that anyone says unless we have at least two witnesses or three witnesses. So essentially what they're saying is, listen, we, we don't believe you because you didn't do it our way. So Jesus comes back and in 14 he says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. 15, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. His first point is this. You're talking about natural things. I am supernatural. He goes, I know where I came from. I know where I came from. You don't know where I came from. You're talking about these little laws and opinions and things you've added to the law. I'm talking about supernatural truth that I'm trying to offer you. You're missing the point. I am supernaturally speaking things to you, and you are naturally trying to discount them because of the law. Even when you judge, you're judging according to the laws that you've added to the law of God. You're judging in human ways. You're judging in ways that God would not have you judge. I am judging from the voice of the Father who sent me. I'm judging from the voice of God. I'm supernatural. You are speaking naturally. And then in verse 17, he picks up and he says, fine, I'll legitimize it your way. We can talk about your rules, your laws. And it even says in your law, your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And they said to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you neither know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. So essentially he says, listen, my father also testifies. Fine, there's two. There's me and my father testifying. And then they start to get possibly a little bit nasty. Because they say, oh yeah, where, where is your father? And there's an illusion here that probably speaks to the fact that they're questioning the validity of Jesus' birth because his mother Mary was pregnant outside of marriage. So who are you talking about? Are you talking about Joseph? We don't even really know if he really is your father. And the reason that we think this or would know this is later, just a few verses later in 841, they're kind of having a back and forth again and they say something to the effect of, hey, we're not illegitimate children. We, we know our standing because they prided themselves in that. And so Jesus is saying, listen, by your rules or not by your rules, you're trying to avoid judging whether or not my statements are true on technicalities. You, you can't get around truth. And so, so essentially the Pharisees are questioning the validity of his testimony. The second thing that they do is they question the validity, validity, validity of his character. They question the validity of his character, which kind of runs even a little bit deeper. As, he as we kind of transition to that section, I don't want you to miss something here in verse 20. So, so they got a little bit aggressive with the where is your father remark, and he says, you don't know me or my father. If you did, you would know my father also. And then verse 20 says this. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Like, that's not just a transitional phrase. That's one of the many, I call them like the mini miracles of Jesus. 
the understated miracles of Jesus. We know that since chapter 5, they've been seeking to kill and arrest Jesus. They've sent officers out. They've wanted to arrest him. They want to entrap him. They want to kill him. And yet in this moment where they've got to be hot, they've got, we got it. This is our festival. This is the Feast of the Tabernacles. He's in there saying these things. We've got to get rid of him. And it says just randomly, yeah, but they didn't. No one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So Jesus carries on in verse 21 as the Pharisees begin to question the validity of his character. So he came at them again and he said, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And so the Jews answered, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? And you're okay, how does the question, will he kill himself, get at his character? Well, there's some sneaky subtext in this question. It was a common held belief by the Pharisees, in fact, one that they promoted, that if you were to kill yourself, not only did you go to hell, but you went to some of the deepest parts of hell, in their opinion. So essentially what he's saying is that they're accusing Jesus of possibly the, the plot of killing himself, a sin that they felt like was worthy of going to the deepest parts of hell, but they were also kind of reasoning in another way that was kind of, kind of inappropriate or kind of like definitely attack on his character. He's saying he just said that he's going to go somewhere that we can't come. They rightly understood that he was talking about death. And they go, well, if he's saying he's going to go somewhere that we can't come, we already know we're going to heaven. We already know that we're going to heaven because we've obeyed all these rules. So what he must be saying is that he's going to the other place. Maybe he's going to kill himself. Maybe that's the kind of guy that Jesus is. Maybe that's, that's exactly what I think. And it would be very, very safe to read into some of this some wishful and hopeful thinking in the hearts of the Pharisees and the hearts of the religious leaders. As he carries on in verse 23, he said to them, you are from below and I am from above. You see, he answers it. He goes, no, 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 it's the other way around. It's the other way around, my friends. You're from below, I am from above. And he said to them, and then he said, I told you in verse 24 that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Even at this point, Jesus is still saying in the NIV, it really makes more of a, a turn of phrase of it. Like, listen, if you don't believe that I am who I'm saying that I am, you will die in your sins, and you truly will go to below, to hell. And in verse 25, he says, so they said to him, who are you? And I want you to read that right, because sometimes we might read it and we go, they're going, who are you? Just tell us who you are. At this point in the conversation, that is not what they're saying. They're saying, who are you? You're a nobody from nowhere. We don't have to listen to you. We have the answers. We know what we're supposed to be doing. So the questioning of his character is they suspect that he would be one that would kill himself and go to hell by their opinion. They don't even want to, it's their final diss, their final discredit to him. Who, who even are you? And Jesus, maintaining a fairly calm manner, says, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. Then he says this, which if I was a Pharisee, I'd be a little bit scared. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. What do you think he had to say about them? What do you think the judgment was? I think they're very fortunate that he decided that it was not his time 
to launch into those things. But he wanted to keep the main thing the main thing. I am the light of the world. Respond to this. And so we see in these verses how the Pharisees respond, and then we want to answer this last question. So if that's how the Pharisees responded, how should we respond? How should we respond? And just like there were kind of two ways or two things that the Pharisees did to try and discredit Jesus, I just want to bring up two ways that we should respond. Obviously, we need to respond much differently than the Pharisees. But the first thing that I want you to do in your order to respond is to recognize, as bad as these Pharisees sound, that we in our heart oftentimes are very much like the Pharisees. The, the first response is to recognize the trap that the Pharisees fell into that we can do on a daily basis. And it might consume months and years of our life, this kind of trap. We are not above this. The default mode of every heart is drawn to the way of the Pharisee. I, I had a friend who used to say it this way, there's a little Pharisee in all of us. And when he used to say that, I used to imagine like a little guy <laughs> preaching and pointing his finger at people and realizing, yeah, sometimes that's me. Sometimes that's me. Culture is very powerful. So if we use a working definition of culture that is something like this, it could be described as integrated patterns of knowledge, beliefs, and behaviors that create a way of life. So culture is the knowledge, beliefs, and patterns of behavior that create our way of life, the things that contribute to the way a group of people does life. Within that culture, whether you want to call it America or globally the world, we have this culture, but within it, there are subcultures everywhere. And all a subculture means is a cultural group within a larger culture, often having beliefs or interests at variance with those of the larger culture. You can totally see how the Pharisees are this subculture within their culture. We're the ones who are right about everything. We're the ones whose opinions and beliefs matter more than other people. You, you look at the irony we talked about. They care so much about their opinions that when the Messiah that they were waiting for is standing right in front of them, they can't see him. They were carried away by their extra beliefs and their extra opinions. Now, luckily for us, this does not ever happen to us. Yeah, one of you got that? We don't get carried away with our opinions and then speak poorly about those who don't hold the same opinions that we don't do that. That's why we live in a cancel culture. If you don't agree with me about X, Y, or Z, canceled. And listen, I'm not saying that there aren't grave evils in this world to be avoided. There absolutely are. I'm not saying there aren't influences that you as a wise person would go, I'm, not gonna, I'm certainly not going to listen to those things. But the reason that we do that is because we have arrogantly assumed that we're right about things that God's not calling us to try and be right about. And, and before you start thinking, oh, yeah, that's the problem over there, you know, because we immediately start thinking about politics. But before you think this, just understand this. There are Pharisees, there are right-wing Pharisees, and there are left-wing Pharisees, and everything in between. You can have a special interest group about anything and then proceed to judge the people that are in the different special interest group than, than you, that you are. These subcultures are powerful. 
Uh, Seth Trout over at Gateway, I think, preached this passage last week, and he made some great observations on the power of subculture and how it, what it does to us. But these Pharisees are in this subculture, and these are things that we do. And we will be carried away. We will be carried away from the singular focus, the singular culture of Jesus himself. We should say, I want to be able to say that my culture is Jesus and him alone. Think about that. My culture, my integrated patterns of knowledge, my beliefs, my behaviors that create a way of life is Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world. He is my guide, my path, my protection. He wants to be my culture. See, I am not ultimately of anything except Jesus. That is my desire. I'm not of the Republicans. I am not of the Democrats. I am not of women's rights. I am not of gun laws or guns rights. I am not of black or white or Hispanic or any other race or creed. I am of Jesus. We, we do not live in a world where that is preached to us. We live in a world that wants to draw us into something else, saying, no, this is what's going to compete for the honor and the allegiance that you're supposed to give to Christ. And it's so subversive. It happens so quietly. We don't even notice it until all of a sudden we find ourselves in a very opinionated or heated exchange with someone and we think that God is on our side. And if God is gracious to us, he might give us a moment to rise above the situation and realize that he is not in that at all. Now, don't misunderstand me. The very reason that we press into things like racial reconciliation is not because we want anyone to or are seeking to find any identity in race. It's because in finding our identity in Christ, in having Jesus be our culture, our hearts are broken by the things that break his heart. And we can't take it, we, we can't stand by, we can't sit by and say, that injustice or that thing is fine. It's the same reason that I would stand in opposition to abortion. It's the same reason I would stand in opposition to human trafficking. It's the same reason I would stand in opposition to the redefinition of, of sexuality and gender that opposes God's design. It's the same reason that when I get a call yesterday morning, I go and I weep with faith. And Brittany. Because a few chapters later, we see one of the shortest verses in the Bible that is so profound. And in John eleven thirty five, 35, it says that Jesus wept. Why, why did he weep? Because his friend Lazarus had died. And people were mourning. And to have Jesus as my culture means that I weep with those who weep. I think about this because Jesus knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And I think to myself, man, I'd probably have some sort of wry smile if I, if I knew that. But Jesus' empathy is so strong that he's caught up in the moment and his love for people. That's why we press into things. 
because he is our culture. I want to be of Christ, and I want to be of Christ more than anything else. So I encourage you, I implore you, examine yourselves. See if there's any way of the Pharisee in you. What are the subcultures that I am fighting for only to have Jesus confront me and say, that's not, that's not being of me. That's not following the light of the world. In order to do this, we need to do the second thing. And it's found in the end of this passage in verse 28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and I do nothing of my own authority and speak just as the Father has taught me. And Jesus is saying, okay, fine, you Pharisees, you, you won't believe me. You don't want to accept that I am the light of the world. You don't want to accept it. I get it. Let me just tell you this. When you lift me up, then you will know. Here's what he's saying. When you lift me up on the cross, when you lift up the Son of Man to crucify him, and when this goes down, there will be no way that you can't know. In a short time, you're going to arrest me. You're going to beat me. You're going to put me on a cross. And when you do, and when I am breathing my last, the entire sky will grow dark. The veil in the temple that you so love will be split and torn in two. Three days later, the tomb will be empty because I have risen from the dead. And then you will know. But even then, will you believe? Will you believe? We have to take the disciplined approach of lifting up Jesus in our lives. We have to look to the cross. We have to see him. It's, it's not okay to just say, yeah, I think that happened. We have to see Jesus for who he truly is, the light of the world, the light of my world, the person who guides my path, not just to salvation, but to everything that I do every day of my life. He has to become preeminent. We, we can't miss this. And this speaks to us no matter where you are in life in this room. If you are a believer, someone who professes Christ, you must find yourself repeating the gospel over and over to yourself. I remember a few years ago, the, not a few years, it's been more than that. It's been a decade, 15 years. This kind of concept of preaching the gospel to yourself kept ringing around the church and I would say it, and I would go, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I mean, we should do that. It didn't take heart in my life until I really realized what it meant, reminding myself of who I am apart from Christ and what he did because of my condition. I need that message every day. I need that message every moment of every day to the believers in the room. Preach the gospel to yourself. Don't ever stop. Bury yourself in its grace. We are called to walk in the light of Christ. Years ago, I went on a backpacking trip, and we came along in a canyon with a, lot of, a bunch of people from the church here. And I was trying to remember who I did this with. It was kind of crazy. I'm not sure I would ever do this again. But we came in this canyon to this little hole in a giant rock wall that went up 100 feet. And in the bottom of it, there was this little hole in there, and it was just barely big enough that like, I could get through it. And I think, if I remember right, Jed Mon was with us, and Aaron Cass, I think, was with us, Mason Galfius, I think, was with us, and I, I think I remember Mason and me and Jed, at least, shimmied our way into this, this little cave. 
And what we found when we got in there was these paths that just kept going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, like an abandoned mine. It clearly, that must have been something like what it was. And all of a sudden, I felt like I was in the Goonies, right? And we're going deeper and deeper and deeper into this cave. And I'm thinking to myself, this isn't very smart, but ah, this is fun. It's adventure. And I'm thinking, if my wife gets the message, yeah, he died when a, a cave like, collapsed and he's in there somewhere, like, she's not going to be real happy with me. But my spirit of adventure was too strong. We kept going and going and going and going. Multiple times, three pathways in front of us, and we choose this one, and we choose that one, and, and we've got flashlights. And I remember the moment where we were getting far enough away from the opening that it disappeared, where we made a turn, and all of a sudden, it wasn't there anymore. And we had made enough turns where I think we kept looking at each other, and I kept saying, do you remember where we went? You, you, oh, yeah, we're good, we're good, we're good, we're good. It's like, we're going to get to this place, and we're going to be okay? And it would open up into these bigger rooms, and it was, it was really, really a cool experience if you can get over the claustrophobia and the danger of it. I was really impressed that Mason and Jed were with me because, I mean, they're, they're bigger dudes. and I mean, they're bigger dudes than me, and I was struggling. We were on our hands and knees through parts. Of this. It was crazy. We get into one of these spots where we could almost stand in this room that was probably like 10 by 10 carved out of the rock, and they said, okay, everyone turn off your lights. It was the blackest darkest thing I could ever, I've ever imagined. I'm standing inches away from my friend. I can't see him. We could have we run into each other and accidentally kissed and we wouldn't even known what was happening. <laughs> it was insanity. And I think about this. When Jesus is offering you the light, he's not saying, hey, this is a happy light, but you know, you live in a world where there's other things. He's saying all other pursuits all other pursuits are utter darkness. It's as dark as that cave. It's like getting to that place where you have no idea what way is up, what way is down. All other pursuits are utter darkness. We live in a really, really crazy world. It's confusing to know what I'm supposed to do, which way is up, which way is down. I do not want to leave what I'm supposed to do or the guidance of my path to the group of my friends who have the strongest opinion, or to the thing that I read on social media, or to my news feed on my phone, and I put that in air quotes, because if you think that it validates your news, that on your phone, the app has a picture of a newspaper on it, like that means it's true, like we are ill-informed if we believe that. But you know what I do believe? Jesus is the light that his way is truth, that he leads me out of darkness. So if you are a believer, press into the light by lifting him up. Church, there is nothing else that matters. Nothing else that matters except Jesus. This time in life is very, very sobering, and I was reminded yesterday through a conversation with someone that in the last weeks of Tom Schrader's life, who was the founding pastor of this congregation, he had many conversations with a lot of people, and Tyler Johnson would have been one of those people, and the thing that he kept pressing over and over and over again is, Jesus is all that matters. Nothing else matters. Church, are you in a, in a place, or Christian, are you in a place where you've only given half to Christ? Where if we evaluated life, we would say, yeah, I, I've probably only given half. Have I given three quarters? 
Or am I all in, dedicated, sold out, living in the light of Christ that he would guide my path? He's all that matters. And to those of you in the room that maybe you're sitting here and you're going, I I don't know that I'm a believer. I, I don't know where I'm at with Christ. I have a question for you. What will you do with Jesus? He's making a call to you this morning. Verse 12 tells us he is the light of the world. Follow him and do not walk in darkness. And verse 24 gives a warning. If you don't, you will perish in your sins. He's not offering an option. He's not offering a way or a different way of thinking. He is offering the only hope. The only hope. He wants to be your guide in every endeavor. He wants to light the way. He wants to be your comfort. He wants to be your shade. He wants to be your shield when you rest. How will we respond to this call? Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, your word. And God, I just, I just thank you for um, your sustaining power. God, I thank you um, that you are so kind to us. God, that when our little pharisaical hearts run after things that aren't you and we convince ourselves that they are you, when our judgment runs deep, when our opinions are too strong, God, you still graciously and kindly call us back to yourself. God, I just, I pray for us. God, don't allow us to be stuck like the Pharisees. Stuck thinking that that what I think matters or competes with what Jesus says. God, it doesn't matter. <clears throat> Only you matter. All definition of good flows from you. All definition of right flows from you. I can't place those things on you. So God, where there is sin, I pray that you confront it. Where there is half-hearted commitment to you, God, I pray that you convict and you bring people into full and, and outright communion with you that would affect their life and everything that they do. God, I think of Jesse. And God, one of the things that could be said of him is, God, you couldn't get into a conversation with him without him talking about Jesus. God, would that be us? <laughs> Maybe not as long of conversations, God. But God, would that be us? God, glorify yourself in us and in this moment. Pray this in your name.